did you miss me last week? <laughs> yes. <laughs> How do you get out of the suck, Hazel? <laughs> uh, pure anger at the uh, the false statements that were said about me. It was just venom mm-hmm. that got me out. <laughs> Tom Hardy. Yeah. <laughs> you, well, he was wearing a mask, so oh, it was okay. Oh, good. Okay. <laughs> but what if there is no tomorrow? There wasn't one today. Fascinating. Get away from her, you bitch! I'm Batman. Do or do not. There is no tomorrow. Welcome to the Nerdfest podcast. Today on our show, we've got Dan Watkins, Andy Chandler, Peter Johnson, John Farthing, and I'm Hazel Burton. Today we've got some brand new recommendations for you, so lots of new films, all sorts of things that we've been enjoying recently and we'd love to tell you about. And we're going to be discussing our favourite scary movies just before Halloween. So, let's start the show. So it's coming up to Halloween. Yes. Yes. And... Seen as we probably won't be allowed to knock on anybody's doors, or actually, no, knocking on people's doors and then running away is probably the <laughs> only situation we can <laughs> knock on doors. Yeah. And if anyone throws toilet paper at your window this year, it's a bonus. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah I'm running out of eggs, actually. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> just so we're, we're winning all round. But bear in mind, we're going to be spending Halloween indoors. I thought we might. Think about some scary movies and TV shows that we mm. like and maybe talk about. Well, I don't particularly like scary movies because I'm far too brave for them. Um, <laughs> but mm-hmm. I do like The Shining. I think The Shining is absolutely fantastic. The weird thing with The Shining is Stephen King hates it, the film. Mm. Do we know why? Is it because of Jack Nicholson? I think it's because of Kubrick. I think he just doesn't like that some things got changed mm. and that's not what I wrote. Boo is his response. He got rid of the hedge monsters and a lot of kind of the more overt supernatural elements. But my understanding of it was that he thought Jack Nicholson was really miscast. Because the story of The Shining, the book, is a normal good father who is driven insane by what happens in that hotel. Mm. And then you cast Jack Nicholson and you're like, well, he's already crazy. (laughs) 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 Worked out okay, though, didn't it? Yeah. He should probably stick to his books. So it'll be it'll be Nicolas Cage in the remake then. Oh um, well, there already was a remake because uh, Stephen King disliked it so much he remade it as a miniseries in the nineties with Rob Lowe, and it was like a four or six hour miniseries, and it was not good. I mean, I, I like Rob Lowe in the West Wing and his sex tapes, um, <laughs> but he's no Jack Nicholson. That's not what he says about yours. <laughs> <laughs> I've just listened to a Rob Lowe podcast this morning. It's called Literally! Exclamation mark with Rob Lowe. <laughs> <laughs> but he was interviewing Aaron Sorkin, so I thought, all right, as, as self-involved as he is as an actor, bless him, um, I, I will mm-hmm. give it a go. And he did turn the conversation to him a lot, but uh, it, it, yeah. it, it was good. <laughs> I think Rob Lowe is one of those guys whose heart is in the right place, but has growing up and being surrounded by Hollywood for so long that he's possibly a little bit loopy. He is also sort of spookily beautiful for a bloke as well, and that's got to affect you. <laughs> that's not the sort of spooky we were going to be talking about, Peter. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, our Halloween tradition isn't particularly scary either, but the film we watch on Halloween every year tends to be what we do in the shadows. Ooh. It's the perfect background film for carving your pumpkins and eating lots of sweets. 
We watch it every year, but are not particularly frightened by it. Because uh, I, too, am so brave that I don't really watch <laughs> horror films. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What, what was the bravest you've ever been watching a horror movie, Dan? Probably watching The Others. Nicole Kibben. Mm-hmm. Scary yeah. ghosts are the scariest kind of horror creature for me, I think, because it's so easy once you've finished watching the film to imagine them everywhere in your house for many <laughs> nights afterwards. Mm. Not that easy because they're not real. <laughs> yeah, but I don't know. John, what's that over your shoulder? It's Nicole Kidman. <laughs> Run! <Yeah. laughs> I'm the same. I love a good popcorn horror film and I grew up, uh, like my teens were in the 90s, so I loved Scream. I loved um, I Know What You Did Last Summer. I loved, all, I loved all the popcorn stuff. I'm sort of the opposite of John. I don't like things that are disturbing and real and... Yeah, mm-hmm. I'd, I'd much prefer to see something that's so uncategorically unreal that it's like, okay, I can actually enjoy this because it's just ridiculous. You've got into horror a bit more recently, though, haven't you? Having s- yeah. s- sworn off horror films, you've watched a few recently that you've quite enjoyed. Yeah, um, really, really enjoyed Ready or Not um, that came mm. out maybe last year. Um, it's on Sky now. I thought that was absolutely terrific. Um I've watched a few over the years. I do agree about The Shining. I think that's terrific. I love Silence of the Lambs. And I know that kind of breaks my rule about it being an, like disturbing. <laughs> um, but I thought the, mm-hmm. the plot in that was terrific. One of the reasons that I love Seven so much is that it is such an original, tight plot that is superbly acted. And that is more important to me than anything else. So um, I sort of don't have a hard and fast rule about horror movies. As long as it's a really, really good film, I'll, I'll, I will watch it. Mm-hmm. We were watching uh, Jurassic Park Dominion. That, that film they haven't finished making yet. Oh, sorry, no, Jurassic Park. What was the last one called? <laughs> Fallen Kingdom. <laughs> the director, J.A. Bayona, of that film got his start in horror films and according to interviews, tried to put a bit more of a horror influence into that film. Mm. I was too busy crying tears of rage to actually notice. <laughs> but John, as a horror connoisseur, did you notice much of a, a horror influence in it? Well, yeah. I mean, the, the last third of the film was this weird kind of gothic house, lit like a horror movie with the Indominus Matrix, Vibratorex, whatever they call it. In Indominus Rex, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so it was kind of shot, I could see a little bit like a horror movie. I mean, the original Jurassic Park, when I went back to it after not having seen it for years, I was surprised how scary it was. Mm. It did yeah. loads of stuff you wouldn't have got away with if you weren't Spielberg. Mm-hmm. Spielberg scared the shit out of me when I was a kid, like Jaws. So I think I watched that when I was eight, which is probably too early. And I still remember the sea turning red after the kid got it. Mm-hmm. And I just traumatised for years. He has a lot to answer for, Mr. Spielberg. There's a lot in the quasi-Spielberg poltergeist when I was a kid. So the clown under the bed, that was quite scary. And the guy in the um, sink when he's washing his face in the sink and all the, all the flesh starts coming off. Oh. So when we were at Halloween Horror Nights at Universal, they actually recreated that scene. So you walked in the bathroom and there was a guy with like a plastic mask got with blood spurted out of it, scratching at his face, which was uh, horrifying and delightful in equal measure. So how do you feel about live horror experiences compared to film and TV? Because the film of The Woman in Black with Daniel Radcliffe, I wasn't too frightened by, but seeing it on stage in the West End was absolutely terrifying. 
I've never been frightened by a stage play other than when I was a really, really small child when I was traumatised by some Christmas play that our school took us to. What was the Christmas play? I can't (laughs) recall, but there was a bird that had four feathers and he could pull the feather out to do a miracle. And there was a point where he had one feather left and he had to pull that feather out to save somebody. And I was aware that if the bird pulled that feather out, it would die. And I, I was bawling in the um, theatre. I think, I think the teacher had to take me out. Probably ruined sixth one for you, right? It was my undergraduates. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know teachers were allowed to take out their children. Um, this was back in the good old days before. <laughs> that being a John story, I was quite certain that when he said that there was a bird with only four feathers, I've... I thought that was going to be that they're strategically placed and then seductively the <laughs> cheeky teasing bird will occasionally drop another feather and there's one left and then finally you'll get to see his little, I don't even know what birds have. Kalaka, I believe. Yeah. His little bird, Kalaka. Kalaka. That's a musical instrument, isn't it? <laughs> Maracas, I think you think. Maracas and Kalakas. Don't get them mixed up, otherwise <laughs> you'll be asked to leave both the zoo and the orchestra. <laughs> we may be off topic here. Yeah. <laughs> When I was young, uh, the most terrifying thing that I can remember from a film was uh, the end of Superman 3, uh, where Robot Lady gets mm. turned into Robot Lady, and uh, I couldn't watch that. Yeah. I can now because, well, I can't because the film's terrible, but I'd be able to sit through that bit. <laughs> I watched Superman 3 for the first time in a long time, fairly recently, and it's not as horrifying as I remember, because my memory of it is kind of transmogrified over the years into Tetsuo. So, like, there's wires going under her skin and pulling her face apart and turning into an evil robot. And in reality, just a bit of metal goes on her. The film that scared me the most as a kid um, was Oliver, the musical. Mm. Mm. Because of Bill Sykes. Mm. Absolutely terrified. And his, his death. He's sort of shot and hung at the same time, and then he just sort of swings from a building, and it's absolutely terrifying. That was my version of a horror film when I was six. <laughs> There's a lot of inappropriate moments in, you know, what are ostensibly children and family films. Return to Oz? Yes. Oh, God, how weird is that? Yeah, the wheelies. Horrifying. Start with Dorothy getting electroshock therapy and... Yeah. Mm. Yeah, the wheelers, all the heads in jars, people being turned to stone. Yes. Yeah, really, really mm-hmm. creepy film. I can't remember exactly how long into my parents taking me to see that in the cinema that they realised they'd made a terrible mistake. <laughs> it, it, it wasn't that long. Yeah. Um, the one as a kid that always freaked me out is a series called The Adventures of Grady Greenspace on ITV back mm. in the early 90s which was a dubbed version of a French show that used a combination of horrifying dark crystal style puppets and real animals. Mm. And it freaked me out to the point I had nightmares for years afterwards about this show. And I could never remember what it was called and eventually found it on YouTube. And it is still really, really horrible. And I don't recommend watching it, but at the age of five or six, seeing that it just left an impression on my childhood mind for a long time afterwards. Mm. But to pick something a lot more popular, something that is family friendly, but it's got really scary moments. The mummy, the Brendan Fraser mummy with the scarabs that Mm -hmm. crawl under your skin and that kind of thing. Yeah. 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 Uh, Some good hide under the coat behind the sofa moments in that film. I think it's a 12, but it is a scary film. Yeah. Never been to Egypt since. 
<laughs> when UK Gold started reshowing Doctor Who back from the sort of beginning, mm. we literally got one sofa and put it behind the sofa in our living room <laughs> and watched it on a sofa behind the sofa to get that authentic being a child watching Doctor Who experience. So, John, as our biggest horror connoisseur, what is your favourite scary movie? Oh, that is an impossible question. <laughs> I guess I grew up with scary movies. Have I told the story about my grandmother on this podcast before? Basically, used to babysit me and we'd yeah. have a trip to the video shop and video shop ratings were not anything that perturbed her. I, I watched A Nightmare on Elm Street, I think, when I was seven, I recall, <laughs> and Robocop about the same time. So I've grown up loving horror movies and I've never been particularly scared or afraid of them. It's nice how it hasn't warped you in any way. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, um, I've not killed anybody for a long time. That's a thing, that's a... <laughs> But I think because I grew up watching them and because I also grew up as a kid fascinated with like special effects and makeup effects and everything and how films were made, I've never had that thing where I've been terrified by a film because I've always been aware that, you know, that there's an actor behind Pinhead's makeup and that's not blood, it's tomato sauce and things like that. Mm. So the only things I really have trouble with, um, there's a few films that have kind of real life unsimulated animal cruelty in them and I have a real problem with that. But other than that, I've not really found anything scary or disturbing. I really love the first Nightmare on Elm Street. That was the first mm. proper modern horror movie. Uh, An American Wolf in London, the first Howling, those sort of films that I grew up with. Things that are fun as well as horrific. So like the Howling is hilarious in places, but it's also a really, really good horror movie. Likewise, in American Way of London, you know, that, that, that mix of horror and comedy, but taking the horror seriously, I think works really, really well. Um, but if I had to pick one to just put on a Friday night with a can of beer and enjoy myself, it would probably be probably the Evil Dead trilogy. Mm-hmm. So if you had to pick one, you'd pick three. <laughs> <laughs> Evil Dead, low budget, quite disturbing in places. A few sexual things that haven't aged particularly well. I think some Raimi has said he regrets because he was trying to shock as a yeah. young filmmaker. I know what scene you're referring to. <laughs> Evil Dead 2 is essentially a, a Warner Brothers cartoon brought to life in places. That's the one with the hand, right? It's got the worst joke of all time. Because his hand has been possessed by a demon and is attempting to kill him. He saws his hand off with a chainsaw and then puts it under a bucket. And then he puts a book on top of the bucket to stop the bucket running away with the hand. And can anyone guess what the name of the book is? I can't remember, but you uh, had me watch this film for a shameful gap once, so I'm sure I would have noticed. Is it a handbook? No, it's a farewell <laughs> to arms. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> you know, for maybe Dan and Andy and I, not particularly huge fans of horror, but, you know, are keen to celebrate Halloween in, in the way that Mr. Hallow intended. I don't know how it works. Um, uh, what film would you recommend us watching? I, w- I would watch A Nightmare on Elm Street and A Nightmare on Elm Street 3 as a double bill. Elm Street 2 is awful, but is a really interesting gay horror movie. It's kind of trying to sneak stuff by a studio, but it's also, whilst all this is being repressed, so you've got this guy who has a girlfriend that he's not interested in, and a gym teacher who he's more interested in, and Freddy Krueger kind of invades him, and they're going to a, a, a leather bikers club for no reason, and they're just having a drink with all these leather boys, leather muscly guys in the background for no reason. And basically, Freddy represents his... Were you watching Grease by accident? No. <laughs> or perhaps Police Academy. The Blue Oyster <laughs> Bar, yeah. Um, so Freddy represents his repressed homosexuality that frees him to some extent, but then has to be destroyed so he can be with the girl at the end because it's the 80s and normality has to be resumed. 
But for the third one, they brought Wiz Craven back to write the story. And it's the first one where Freddy Krueger is more or less the anti-hero. So it's the wise-cracking, jokey Freddy Krueger that became this cultural phenomenon in the 80s. And it's directed by Chuck Russell, uh, the mask. who went on to do The Mask. Frank Darabont was involved in writing it. Patricia Arquette's in there. Um, Larry Fishburne's in there. Mm-hmm. It's a really, really well-made, really fun horror movie but you need to watch the first one for context Mm -hmm. so i would recommend elm street one and three they're not that scary these days that's halloween sorted then i would love you to do that and report back to me what you think i'll uh write my review on a piece of toilet paper and throw it at your house (laughs) thank you very much So it's time to do our recommendations and this is where we've been watching or enjoying things that we would love to talk to you about on the podcast. So who would like to go first? Dan has raised his hand. I do like when Dan raises his hand. Being very polite. Um, Yeah, I thought I would keep our Halloween horror theme going by talking about a film with vampires in it. Specifically a film that's just been added to Netflix called Vampires vs. the Bronx. It's the story of three kids, uh, Luis, Bobby and Miguel, who grow up in the Bronx in New York in a diverse working class neighbourhood where everyone knows each other. But it's suffering the effects of gentrification. People are being priced out of the houses. Businesses are being bought out and replaced by artisanal coffee shops. The bodegas on the corner start selling kale and oat milk for white women with canvas bags. And the boys are concerned about the future of their neighbourhood. What they discover is that the property developers sucking the life out of their community are literally sucking the life out of their community because they're vampires. And they have to team up with their new friend Rita, played by Coco Jones, who's great in the film, figure out how to stop the vampires and save the Bronx. And it's a really fun 80s feeling hour and a half. It's got a touch of Amblin to it, a bit of Fright Night, a bit of Lost Boys. It's got characters you care about. It's got lots of fun nods to vampire mythology. So the evil property developers are known as Murnau Property, after mm-hmm. F.W. Yeah. Murnau, the director of Nosferatu. The top estate agent is called Polidori, after John Polidori, who wrote The Vampire back in the 1800s. And to get tips on how to fight the vampires, the boys get together and they watch a DVD of Blade. Nice. <laughs> what I really liked about it is it's a really good continuation of how versatile vampires can be in films and books and TV to represent something that a community or a society feels threatened by. Back in the Victorian period, when Sheridan Le Fanu wrote a book called Carmilla about a woman vampire who didn't need men to thrive, it was about the threat of women getting independence from men. Back in the turn of the 20th century, when Eastern Europeans were coming over to Britain and the Victorians were feeling threatened, Along comes Bram Stoker to write Dracula. In the 50s, when germ warfare and biological warfare were threatening in the US, Richard Matheson wrote I Am Legend. And this just feels like a 21st century equivalent of that. Traditional communities being replaced by the effects of gentrification, bring in a vampire to show that in your film, and it just worked really well. Lots of fun, not too scary. Uh, recommended if you want a popcorn movie on Halloween this year. Mm-hmm. That yeah. sounds great. But with hidden depths, it seems. Has, has anyone else seen it? 
No, I was put off by the title. Yeah. Because there's been a lot of recently, there's been like Cockneys versus Zombies and uh, Strippers versus Werewolves and things like that. And, and they've always yeah. been rubbish. This, this is most definitely not that. So, so I've been unfair then to lump it in with that kind of low budget. Yeah, it's definitely not that. It makes good use of... Uh, the budget it has but mm-hmm. the vampires are suitably scary they've got a bit of the buffy kind of prosthetics on it you get things like holy water bubbling when vampires are close by which is a really nice new touch to the mythology and it uses darkness and sunlight and things like that really well but it's about the human characters rather than the vampires yeah so, as a um, huge fan of buffy did it kind of land in that sort of space for you yeah, I'd say so. It f- it fits that kind of light-hearted tone, but with real, pardon the pun, stakes. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Yeah. Um, I've seen it. I mean, it was enjoyable enough. Um, the only danger of kind of talking it up is that then people go in expecting it to be great, and I would say it's a bit more of a Critters than a Gremlins. John will probably, I'm sure, <laughs> get the reference. As long as it's not a Critters in space. It's not groundbreaking. It's not the best example by far of that sort of thing I've seen but it's enjoyable enough I didn't think the vampires themselves were particularly scary it did feel a bit more like it was aimed at a younger audience you know it certainly wasn't adult horror yeah it has a 12A certificate mm-hmm. but as the person recommending it I would say it's more than fine enough I'd say it's better than a piece of fluff <laughs> and I do think it's great so um, that's why we've called this section recommendations rather than it's alright section yeah it'll do section some of the shit I've recommended come on <laughs> Well, you're the exception to most rules. Andy's recommended a Ugandan kung fu rap, <laughs> whatever the hell that was the other week. I sincerely recommended Who Killed Captain Alex, and I suspect that you didn't watch it, and I'm devastated. <laughs> um, I, I, I watched the first 15 minutes, and I enjoyed it enough that I will watch the rest of it at some point. Um, but not enough to have watched the rest of yeah, it. Yeah, well, what I didn't realise, and I'm going to blame Andy for not describing it properly, I thought I'd downloaded some dodgy copy with an awful audio commentary over the top or some like reaction video on YouTube. I didn't realise that the guy who was doing the toasting, is it called? The 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 commentary over the top. The video joke. Was joker. part of the film. I, I spoke at length about um, VJ Emmy. Yeah, he did. Yeah, he, he did. I listened did, to that uh, episode and he did talk about that quite a lot. Okay, I, I mis- misheard. <laughs> <laughs> I only listen to my own bits. <laughs> <laughs> I find the rest of it surprisingly difficult to masturbate to. <laughs> well. You and Rob Lowe need to have a conversation. <laughs> You're just both there masturbating to your own podcasts. <laughs> right. Um, any, anyone else? Anyone? Anyone? Oh, sorry. No, Dan. Uh, out of 10. Out of 10, uh, I would give it eight bubbling vials of holy water out of 10. I had a really good time with it. Uh, What I want from films this year is fun, and this delivers that. Lovely. I think I'd much prefer to watch that on Halloween night uh, rather than John's recommendation of a film where the undead paedophile serial killer becomes the hero. (laughs) (laughs) Anti-hero. Yeah. Who wants to go next? I would like to recommend On the Rocks, which is uh, a new film out in cinemas at the moment, though by the time of release it may not be anymore. I think it's coming to Apple TV next Friday. 
Yeah, Friday the 23rd yeah. of October. So by the time this has been released, if it's not in the cinema anymore, then uh, it's on Apple TV Plus. And it's really, really good. Uh, it's a drama uh, which follows a, a young mother who is beginning to suspect that her husband is possibly cheating on her. And uh, she begins to reconnect with her larger-than-life playboy father, and he drags her down the rabbit hole, and she becomes more and more paranoid and, and suspicious of her husband. And uh, larks ensue. This is the new film written and directed by Sophia Coppola. It stars Rashida Jones as Laura, um, the central protagonist, and her father, Felix, is played by Bill Murray. So being a Murray-Coppola um, collaboration, it's bound to draw comparison to Lost in Translation, which is one of my very favourite films in the world. If you like Lost in Translation, if you like the feel of it, the style of it, then I think you'll definitely like On the Rocks. It's got a sense of fun. The directorial style is clean and clever and to the point. It's, it's not flashy direction, but it's effective. Um, you get a bit of quirk, but not too much. It's believable and, and engaging. And at, at its heart, it's not a film about the stuff that happens. It's about how people feel about the stuff that's happening. Um, and this film doesn't have a lot of action, not a lot of set pieces, uh, but it's got a, a tremendous sense of, of uh, directing your feelings and, and getting you to empathise with Rashida Jones's character, Laura. Bill Murray's character is... A, an asshole, and B, utterly charming because he's Bill Murray. So he's really enjoyable when he's on screen, but he's not someone that you should look up to. He's very much a womanizer, and he's quite unrepentant about it. And he stokes Laura's fears by describing how all men are helpless to their libido, and nature has decreed that all men must desire to impregnate all women in the vicinity. And he really is the main driving force towards her suspicions growing. As the film goes on, you see that there's more to Bill Murray's character. There's a lot of guilt, and in a way he feels like he's trying to atone for something that he's done in the past, but he does it by stomping over everyone else and um, not listening to what other people want and, and really trying to have everything his own way. Uh, so he's not a very likeable character, except he is because he's Bill Murray, and the film's lovely and fun and uh, something that everyone should watch, apart from Hazel, who didn't like it. <laughs> ah. Yeah, I I can't remember the last time I sat in the cinema and felt so bored. Oh, because I found Lost in Translation quite boring, and I was going to ask Andy whether I would get on with this, but it sounds like I might not. I love oh. Lost in Translation. Yeah. So I might have enjoyed it at another time because at the moment I just feel that it's a lot of rich people with rich people problems with no depth to their characters whatsoever. And it just all felt very inconsequential. And it might just be the times that we're living in when I wanted more oomph. <laughs> but nothing happens in that film. It's just people talking at each other and not really talking with each other as well. I just thought it was so disappointing. Oh no, we, we've got we're two recommendations in, and we've got two disputations already. <laughs> now I, I feel that while it's not a film where a lot of stuff happens, it's not about the uh, the plot so much. It's about the the mental state of uh, a woman who uh, feels a little alienated, uh, lonely in her marriage, and um, and and how her suspicions grow. Should we be worried then if Andy related to that and Hazel didn't? <laughs> yeah. No, that that would be fine if that was actually what 
it was about but there is honestly there there is one layer to that character you just didn't see any of the depth of her emotions whatsoever i just honestly it was not good at all well i disagree i disagree as strongly as possible i think it did an excellent job of conveying um, her mental state and getting you to feel what she's feeling i really really worked for me do you reckon there was a sense of sophia coppola writing about her own father in the Bill Murray character. I really couldn't say at all. I've got no knowledge about the uh, relationship between Sophia and Francis Ford. Um, but if I had to speculate, I'd say, yeah, definitely. Yeah, <laughs> good. <laughs> I don't know. Does it have any autobiographical relationship between the director and her cousin, the greatest actor that's ever lived? Oh. <laughs> uh, no. Because uh, uh, Rashida Jones has got a famous father as well. Quincy who's quite Jones, a, yes. Yeah. Was it more interesting than the interviews Vashida Jones's father gave last year where he just went rambling on about Marlon Brando fucking a letterbox and pointing out to the world that Marlon Brando and Richard Pryor had an affair, which is something I was not aware of previously. I can't imagine that anything could be more interesting than that. I haven't heard <laughs> no. of that. Right, um, I, will, I will try my question again. Andy, how is Rashida Jones in the lead role? Because I've only seen her in sitcoms, really, like The Office and Parks and Rec. Really good. I think she's incredibly relatable, very sympathetic. I very quickly was on her side and, and felt a lot of empathy for her. And I think her performance was understated, uh, but, but very strong. So how many rocks out of 10 would you give it? Are there actual rocks in the film? Uh, I'm going to steer clear of the word rocks because it may confuse oh. things with Hazel's future uh, recommendation. I would give it... Uh, How many Murrays out of 10 would you give it? Nine Murrays out of 10. I thought it was wonderful. I would half that. <laughs> nine Murrays out of five. That's interesting. Four and a half Murrays. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah. Uh, four Bill Murrays and half a Bill Murray from his character in Zombieland. <laughs> <laughs> So seeing as everyone's been disagreeing vehemently about the uh, films we've been watching so far, I'd like to recommend something I think all of you have watched, and hopefully we'll agree on this one. I'd like to recommend The Trial of the Chicago 7. Mm. Appreciative noises I, here. I agree. Yeah, you don't even need to see the first six Trials of Chicago. You just go right in with 7. <laughs> I love how Peter's acting surprised when I texted him last night and you would just seen Trial of the Chicago 7. It's great. <laughs> This is showmanship, John. <laughs> <laughs> so, The Trial of the Chicago 7 is a political drama written and directed by Aaron Sorkin, creator of The West Wing, writer of the movies A Few Good Men and The Social Network, and quite a few others. The story concerns the Chicago 7, a group of originally eight defendants from five different protest groups who were charged with conspiracy to incite riots across state lines over anti-Vietnam protests around the Democratic Convention in Chicago in 1968 after activists and police clashed in a series of violent incidents following moves that denied the demonstrators somewhere to peacefully protest. And now I wish I'd written more full stops in that sentence. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just pace the room while you do it. It'll be great. The government included the head of the Black Panthers in the trial in an attempt to tar all the defendants with the same brush in a case that Nixon directed the state to win at any cost. The fairly shocking way that he was denied proper representation during the trials only one of the shocking ways that it seemed the odds were hugely stacked against the defendants, against a clearly biased judge. The screenplay was written back in 2007 for Steven Spielberg, though all the recent clashes between demonstrators and agents of government in the US this year make it feel really current and vital now. It was planned as a cinema release, but it's gone direct to Netflix, 
which hopefully will bring it to a wider audience ahead of the elections. The cast are great. Eddie Redmayne, Sasha Baron Cohen, Mark Rylance, Michael Keaton, Joseph Gordon-Levitt and many other faces you'll recognise. Sasha Baron Cohen was actually cast for the original version back in 2007, mm. which is why he's perhaps a little old for the part now. I think he's three years younger than the character he is playing was when he died. <laughs> right. The screenplay highlights all the themes and liberal viewpoint that run through Sorkin's work. It's only the second movie he's directed, but it shows a really assured touch. Not a flashy, look-at-me directorial style, but blending together all the various flashbacks that tell the story with great skill and putting the storytelling first so you really root for the characters. I really enjoyed it, and I hope you did too. Mm. Yes, absolutely. We just got sucked into the drama of it all. Loads of great performances. Yaya Abdul-Mateen II as the head of the Black Panthers was great. My favourite was actually, even though he was completely hissable and booable, Frank Langella as the judge. (laughs) I think the only member of the cast that let me down a little bit was Michael Keaton, who just felt like he was playing Michael Keaton, even with the more famous faces like Jeremy Strong from Succession or Eddie Redmayne or Sasha Baron Cohen. I thought of them as the character while I was watching it. Mm -hmm. It was only Keaton that kind of took me out of it a little bit. The fact Mm -hmm. that I've just realised as you said that, that is Jeremy Strong from Succession in that role. Yeah. Proves proves it very, very well how good he was, not it? Yeah. I mean, my sister watched it last night as well and didn't realise it was Sasha Baron Cohen until the end credits. Brilliant in it. I'm, I'm, Mm. I'm thinking he might get an Oscar nomination. Well, hopefully, if it qualifies. It did have a limited cinema release, I believe. It did, yeah. yeah. We almost went to it to see it at the cinema. Did you know um, Will Smith was in the frame for that original version, playing the leader of the Black Mm -hmm. Panthers, Mm. which is a weird choice? He turns down all the best roles and chooses really bad ones. Mm. Um, And the first person they were going to cast for it this time around was Jonathan Majors, who's the lead in Lovecraft Country. Mm -hmm. I just don't get on with him as an actor. Jonathan Majors. I think he mumbles his way through everything and is expressionless. I don't know whether it's his Lovecraft Country character. I've not seen him in anything else, but I think he's terrible in Lovecraft Country. Maybe it's because Lovecraft Country is terrible. (laughs) (laughs) Possibly, yeah. (laughs) So Hazel, as a a Sorkin devotee, uh, how did you find this? As a Sorkin devotee and also a love a good trial movie. um, And that might have started at the same time with A Few Good Men. Mm. I thought it was absolutely brilliant before a very powerful film a very very well cast very well acted film I, I thought it was flawless practically um the mm-hmm. end, well I, I see how uh, Aaron Sorkin's getting his way around the fact that he doesn't really write women very well is not cast any of them in the film. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. uh, now, be fair one was a receptionist <laughs> one was an evil traitor and one was the wife <laughs> It couldn't feel more contemporary with the um, subject matter. Please do go ahead and watch it. it. I thought it was just brilliant. When I got about 15 minutes in, so we get the intro and then we get the credits and we get the start of the trial. And I was worried that we were going to be in for two hours of talky, stagey talkiness, which Sorkin can be guilty of. Mm. But I thought the way that he integrated the events that led up to the trial into the narrative worked really really well and avoided that that staginess that we could have had from a movie entirely set in a courtroom i often hate the way flashbacks get used Mm. to tell story but in this case it worked brilliantly everything just felt right it did everything at the right time and in the right way and Mm. in a way where you knew where you were you knew what was happening you know as i say it was really accomplished yeah yes i i had one casting niggle 
and it's nothing to do with the performance, um, but it's the same issue I had with Colin Firth in Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, in that Eddie Redmayne's there and in the background not doing an awful lot. You don't cast Eddie Redmayne for what's happening here, so clearly we're going to get a big Eddie Redmayne speech at the end, and we did. Uh, I don't know how you can get around that, but I was sat waiting for the Eddie Redmayne Oscar moment. I didn't find that. I thought no, it was I... um, quite a true ensemble piece. I don't know whether he was introduced first, and that might be why, but yeah. he, he felt like one of the lead defendants. Because um, even within the seven, there are two that really don't get focused on yeah. at all. The two sacrificial sausages mm-hmm. on the barbecue of the court <laughs> <Yeah>. case. <laughs> Maybe it was because Sasha Baron Cohen was a much showier part that he kind of mm. took the attention yeah. away from him a little bit. Yeah, until that final third. Yeah. And I have to say, the ending is great. Mm-hmm. Mm. I found it surprisingly funny. I was laughing a lot during yeah. it. Just like as an example, when the horribly awful, awful, awful judge is just not allowing mm. any objections to go ahead and mm-hmm. like in unison, they all say overruled because <laughs> they yes. knew it was coming. Um, just the, it was really quite a funny film, not a sour yeah. yeah, I think that, that helps to sort of sweeten the pill as well, though, yeah. doesn't it? But you're laughing at the objections and the overrules and certain characters not being allowed to speak and so on. And that was funny, but then something happens. Yeah, I wasn't laughing when it got to that. It definitely wasn't allowed to speak. Yeah. And I think when that happens, I think that's much stronger. Yes. For having the laughs beforehand. Yeah. That's jaw-dropping, mm-hmm. like you, your stomach goes, yeah. The reactions are horrific. Like, oh, this this mm. person's actually been denied their human rights, and it was shocking. I really felt a pang then. He's released a barbecue book now, you know. He's still around in his 80s. There's a book called Barbecue with Bobby Seal that you can now buy. Was anyone else waiting for the punchline? No, nope, there's no punchline. Yeah. <laughs> I kind of was, but that wasn't mentioned in the text at the end of the film. Nope. No. Because <laughs> I think Gabby Hoffman is the only name that I would have recognised before the film started. Is that because of Steal This Book? Yeah, he had quite a famous career afterwards as a political activist. In that vein, I would love to draw your attention to Fred Hampton, who was the leader of the Chicago chapter of the Black Panthers. Mm -hmm. The guy behind him. He sat behind Bobby Seale during the trial. He was an absolutely fascinating man, a brilliant man. There's a film coming out uh, about him and the last days of his life. Uh, It'll be out next year. It's called Judas and the Black Messiah, and I'm very excited about that. Oh, I've seen the trailer for that. That looks amazing. I recognise that name somewhere in the back of my mind, but didn't didn't place it. Fred Hampton, great man, snuffed out before his time. Mm -hmm. So it seems like we're we're all in agreement with this one, which is great. I have a very, very slightly dissenting opinion. I really enjoyed the film. I thought it was very good, but there were a couple of bits that didn't quite work for me. Oh, we know we nearly had a full recommendation there, Andy. <laughs> you, you still do. I'd probably give it seven and a half out of ten or so. So it's definitely a, a thumb up from me. I think at times it felt a little bit too glossy and slick for my tastes. Anyway, it, it felt like it was crying out for it to to be slightly more grounded and have a little bit more grit. And one of the uh, criticisms that some people have come out with about the film is that it's Aaron Sorkin's liberal fantasy land, which I, I don't agree with, but I kind of slightly see where people are coming from. because Please, can we have that as a theme park? I would move <laughs> to next to Universal Studios, Aaron Sorkin's liberal fantasy land. Um, what rides would it have, John? The Bartlett Coaster. <laughs> 
Can, can it just be the real world, please? <laughs> yes. It'd be nice, but he, uh, they, they did uh, lay that on pretty thick. Um, it was it was a little heavy-handed with that. Uh, and I think that the judge, though the performance was very good uh, and, and may well have been fairly true to life, it got almost cartoonish at times. I mean, at one point he, he sustained an objection before the prosecution had objected. And I, I lost a little bit of the tolerance Ooh. for that judge character because it was that strong. Um, I would like to charge Andy with one count of contempt. Yes. <laughs> Fair enough. I, I don't know what happens when you charge with contempt. Apparently I don't nothing. know either, but it happened a lot in the film. Uh, it, it did. I was surprised that this is the third film based on this trial. So there was one in 2010, and there was one as long ago as I think the early 80s, which was a fictional reconstruction of the trial, but based on the trial transcripts. Uh, I just wonder if anybody, um, the blank look suggests no, but whether anybody has seen either of those two films? No. Is anybody going to dig out those two films? No, this is a pointless conversation, John. (laughs) (laughs) No further questions. Yeah. Your statement is irrelevant to the discussion. You may sit down. (laughs) So, uh, Peter, how many objections out of ten? Oh, it's got to be 27, which is how many (laughs) objections the lawyer was charged with at the end of the court case. Um, It's got to be a nine. Yeah. Anyone else dissent? Nine for me. Sustained. (laughs) Nine. Yeah. Did you know that um, Bobby Seale got four years in jail for his contempts? Jesus. I think he was possibly the only one that did any substantial jail time. Because he was charged in another state with a different crime, wasn't he? He was charged yeah. for murder and acquitted for that. He was mm-hmm. found not guilty. Right. I mean, Abby Hoffman ended up a drug addict who killed himself. I, I did not realise the real-life inspiration for Crocodile Dundee ended up a crystal meth addict who died in a shootout with police, having spent six months having paranoid fantasies about them. Wow. Mr. Farthing, you're on your final warning for bringing stuff into this conversation that's not relevant. Just <laughs> <laughs> wasn't mentioning um, Crocodile Dundee tree. How did we get into Crocodile Dundee? <laughs> that's not a tangent. This is a tangent. <laughs> and there's your episode title. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, it's Halloween. I'm going to go down the horror sci-fi route with what I think is one of my favourite films of the year. Now, bear in mind, my previous films of the year included Mandy, and therefore, (laughs) (sighs) the film that I would like to recommend, Your Honour, is Possessor, which is the new film by Brandon Cronenberg. Possessor? I hardly know her. Hey! (laughs) Snip, snip, how it goes. (laughs) So is is this David Cronenberg's son? Yes. No, I, I, I think it's sometimes reductive to talk about a director as somebody's son or somebody's partner in that it's kind of almost that you can't judge them and their own work you should go the david jones route and just never mention the fact that you're david Bowie's son. yeah <laughs> <laughs> but this film is so steeped in the imagery of david cronenberg that i think it's fair to say that it is the result of what happens growing up in a household. See, that's what happens when you show a small child horror films from an early age yes. job. <laughs> yeah. In a household, you know, if you're growing up and your dad's away making shivers and the brood and the fly and dead ringers, it's going to have some sort of effect. As a tangent here, the only reason that I didn't recommend any David Cronenberg films in the early section is David Cronenberg doesn't make horror films, he makes science fiction films. So there. <laughs> okay. So are you saying Alien isn't a horror film? 
Fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes, Alien is a horror, but I would say that Cronenberg is more interested in science than he is in horror. I don't think he's ever made a supernatural horror film. Ah, The Dead Zone. Mm, okay. Videodrome? A Videodrome, again, not, no, it's a signal sent out by an evil corporation that is warping people's minds. Well, that sounds sciencey. Anyway. Uh, yeah, so Brandon Cronenberg directed this film. It's his second film after a film called Antiviral that came out a few years ago that didn't set the world on fire, was nothing to write home about. This, on the other hand, is one of the best horror films I've seen in the last couple of years. Andrea Weisbrot of People's Theatre fame. So you and Andrea started off in the same place, Peter? Yes, <laughs> she did better than me. <laughs> So um, Andrea Weisberg plays an assassin who has a rather unique way of getting to her victims via taking over the bodies of people close to them using scientific technology created by a large corporation. So we open on a woman walking through a building, pulls out a gun, shoots somebody, puts the gun in her own mouth, kills herself. We cut back to Andrea Weisberg coming out of a machine, obviously disturbed by having to do this. I think it's, it's clearly having a psychological effect on her. She's then given her next mission, which is to assassinate the head of a multinational corporation via taking control of the son-in-law played by Christopher Abbott. The problem with this is she's starting to struggle to take full control and the remainder of the film is essentially a battle between the two personalities in the one body. I won't say any more than that because I don't want to spoil the plot of the film. The plot of the film, having said that, is secondary to some absolutely amazing and beautiful visuals. It's very hallucinogenic in the way it is filmed you see these two characters merging and unmerging, struggling for control in a way I don't think I've seen before. And it is very, very interestingly done. What it doesn't do in any way is shy away from the brutality of what it is to assassinate somebody, to kill somebody, to injure somebody. And I think that it does that deliberately because you need to see the, the horror of what these people are doing. I think they release it without a rating in the end, and I'm not sure. I think it's an 18 over here, but I'm not sure whether it's been edited in any way. But there's just some shocking jolts of brutality through it, so it's not a film for the faint-hearted, but every piece of violence that is in there is entirely justified. I can't recommend it enough, but it's it's a hard watch in places, but I really, really enjoyed it, and I think Brandon Cronenberg could go on to do more than his dad. For the second film, it's so assured, not a wasted moment, and I think he's, he's going to go on to do really, really great things. I see, looking on Rotten Tomatoes, it gets uh, 92 for the sort of critic score and mm-hmm. 53 from the audience, which mm-hmm. is... Does that imply it's perhaps more film aficionados than yes, um, the general public? I think if you go in expecting a sci-fi action thriller you are going to be very disappointed. Tone-wise, Under the Skin is probably the closest, I would All say, right. the, um, the Scarlett Johansson film, that, that kind of tone and rhythm. Great, but weird. Yeah, um, there's some amazing performances. Sean Beattie's in there. Does he die? Uh, spoilers. <laughs> <laughs> well, it sounds very interesting, uh, but I am put off by the disturbingly brutal deaths. It's not gratuitous, and it, it is necessary 
for the film to work the way it does. In the way that it's important to realise that it's a, a horrible thing to do, which has real repercussions. Very much so, yeah. I, I was blown away by it. I, I watched it twice in a row, which for me is very rare. Like finishing it and then going straight back to it? Yes, yeah. Yeah, wow. Was that because something happens that causes you to reinterpret earlier events or just that you enjoyed it? Uh, a little bit of both. Um, how many Cronenbergs out of ten? Nine and a half. <laughs> Nine, that's a lot of Cronenbergs. Mm. Hmm. I assume he's got some other family members hanging around Well, it's somewhere. the cloning machine from The Fly. They just use that to uh, make extra ones. Basically, they put his dad and his son in a cloning machine together. Um, Clonenberg. Clonenberg. <laughs> hey! <laughs> yeah, so I'm going to guess that nobody's going to watch this film. Yep. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe Keris. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, to be fair, I don't think I've seen that much of David Cronenberg's films. I've seen The Fly. Mm. I think the idea of body horror. Yeah. Is A History of Violence him? Yes, it is, yeah. Yeah, I saw that and that was pretty horrific. Mm-hmm. I remember Judith watched uh, Dead Ringers. She was really disturbed by a few things in that. Yeah. I've always wondered, um, without being sexist, whether women have a different reaction to Dead Ringers than men do, given the the you know the fact that the characters are gynecologists and there's some unpleasantness around that that has men we don't have to deal with. You sound so Victorian talking about some unpleasantness. Some unple- the, there's, there's some unpleasantness, <laughs> yes. They had to show their ankles once. <laughs> but um, again, Dead Ringers is an amazing performance from Jeremy Irons playing twins. You are never for a second, except at one point where it's deliberate, confused as to which character Jeremy Irons is playing. He, he just creates two amazingly defined roles through his physicality and his voice that uh, is probably the best twins I've seen on screen. Well, better than Danny DeVito and Arnold Schwarzenegger. I don't know if I'd want to see Dead Vigors with Squatch Nigger and DeVito or whether I'd want to see twins with Jeremy Irons playing it entirely straight. And they look identical, but it's got all the same jokes. <laughs> <laughs> it's a shame we never got triplets, isn't it? Who was going to be the third person? Eddie Murphy. Eddie Murphy. Okay, that makes sense. No, it doesn't, Peter. <laughs> <laughs> Hazel, bring us home with some happiness. I don't know what inspired you to think that it was a light film that I'm going to recommend. Whatever it is, it's going to be lighter than Possessor. So I would like to recommend a film called Rocks. And just to clarify, the film that Andy recommended, which isn't very good, is called On the Rocks. <laughs> this is a very good film, and it's called Rocks. The next time you're not here, I think you'll probably reassess that opinion. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so Rocks, I think it might well be still be in the cinemas by the time you're listening to this, but it's also just appeared on Netflix. Um, and the character it centres around is called Rocks. She is a 15-year-old uh, London school pupil, and she's played by uh, Bucky Bakre. She is strong, she's feisty, she's funny. She's also a really, really kind girl um, and she has a great group of friends around her. She is also a talented makeup artist. That's what she wants to do when she graduates. She returns home from school one day to find that her mother has abandoned both her and her very young brother called Emmanuel. She uh, has some problems and she says that she just can't handle things right now. So she leaves them with like a few £20 notes to get them by. And Rox is very determined that her and Emmanuel don't get taken into foster care where it's likely that they'll be separated. So she effectively takes him on the run whilst also still trying to attend school and try and 
sort of maintain as normal a life as possible for Emmanuel. As the days sort of go on, the pressure starts to increase on her. Um, she runs out of money very quickly and she's just trying to evade social workers who are trying to find her at the same time. And the, sort of the pressure affects her friendships as well. Uh, so when a new girl uh, called Roche arrives, she's a bit of a wild child and she starts to introduce rocks to a way of life that she might not have considered before. Now, the whole premise sounds a bit grim, but I promise you it's not. It's a raw subject matter. It's very real. But at its heart is a story of friendship and truly being there for someone no matter what. There's actually a sticker in Rox's bedroom that says, um, real queens fix each other's crowns. And that's quite a running theme in this. It was directed by Sarah Gavron, who also made Suffragettes in 2015. And it's a sign of how collaborative this project is that her name as the director features way, way down in the list of credits. The whole film was born out of workshops um, at a range of youth clubs and schools, seeing how these kids interacted with each other, um, you know, learning what was important to them at that time. Um, and that's why everything in the film feels so real and so authentic. A lot of it was improvised as well. Um, and there's a couple of scenes, really enjoyable scenes, which got a lot of the students in. Um, there's a food fight in a food technology class. Um, and there's a freestyle hip hop dance scene as well. And there is something so wonderful about seeing the freeness of those scenes come to life and knowing that the actors were given completely free reign to express themselves. The central characters, Rox, Emmanuel, and her best friend, Samaya, are out of this world in terms of the actors who portray them so so talented the actor who plays Emmanuel must be no more than seven six or seven and there is so much heart in his portrayal you know he's lost his mum too and he can't he is so confused he doesn't know how to express it but he is wonderfully innocent and delightfully funny um no more so than when he's handed the classes uh, pet frog to look after just as things are starting to you know go to hell all around him he's sort of concentrated on his little frog and it's just it's just wonderful genuinely it is my film of the year so far um so yeah it's a wonderful watch please go and see it and and you know support independent filmmaking and, and future projects like this because i think it was such a wonderful thing to do and you can see every inch of that on the screen i echo that it was very very fantastic and it's incredibly realistic uh, the dialogue in particular as, as you touched on was was not cinematic at all people stumble over their words and they speak over each other and it just sounds almost like you're watching a documentary and this is just a camera in the back of a real school classroom yeah, one of their gathering places in school is on the roof and they're shooting themselves like teenagers do, obviously, and, and sort of selfie mode. And that gives it that extra touch of authentic authenticness. Authenticity. Authenticity. That's the word. That's the word. <laughs> yeah, so um, Hazel, it doesn't sound like it's one of these relentlessly depressing, this is the state of the country, social realist, what a terrible place we live in kind of dramas. No, it's, it's, it doesn't feel like that at all. It's very focused on these characters. And yeah, whilst it's, it's powerful and it hits you in all the right emotional places, it's not a dreary, grim film. There is a lot of hope. And yeah, uh, it's, I, I, I left the cinema feeling quite touched and uplifted rather than, oh, God. <laughs> Mm. and you know went back into the real world which at the moment is oh god yeah. <laughs> it, was, it was a nice distraction 
Yeah, it's a very human story. It uh, doesn't really try to make uh, larger statements about society or anything. Uh, the, the wider message of the film is uh, about friendship, uh, yeah. but it's not about isn't, isn't life awful or anything of this nature. It's, it's, it's very, very personal. Now that it's on Netflix, it's definitely going on the watch list for me. Do they fight vampires at any point? Um, they do not. Oh. <laughs> John is sticking his bottom lip out. <laughs> it sounds like a film that I would not probably go and see in the cinema, but as a Netflix Sunday afternoon kind of film. We did see it in the cinema. Um, and, you know, like September, there would have been uh, probably more choices in the cinema mm-hmm. and we probably wouldn't have gone for that one. But the fact that I guess there's little choice at the moment is actually a good thing when it comes to this film because it was a delightful find in that, you know, in circumstances otherwise wouldn't have seen it. But the fact that I did, so grateful. Mm-hmm. Not for, you know, the whole COVID thing, but... <laughs> <laughs> it's a small price um, to pay. How many pet frogs out of ten? Oh, I was going to go nine and a half, but now knowing the frog... Uh, can't, can't slice the frog in half. Um <laughs> <laughs> Ten. <laughs> well, there we are. I, th- I thought you were going to say, "How hard does it rock?" <laughs> I was watching this film with um, Bobby Gillespie of Primal Scream, and he wasn't having it. He kept saying, "Get your rocks off, get your rocks off, Johnny." <laughs> then did he say, "Shake your nana"? He did. Yes. Yeah. Did your nana object? <laughs> <laughs> she loved it. Bless her. <laughs> <laughs> Shaking grandmothers. How does this happen? Call that a tangent. (laughs) That is all we've got time for for this episode of Nerdfest. Thank you very much for listening. Uh, You can check us out on social media. We're at Nerdfest UK on Twitter and Facebook. And if you have the time and inclination, we would hugely appreciate it if you could leave us a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. And as always, John has a wonderful reward for you if you do. Yes, I will dox you. (laughs) (laughs) I think we'll just leave that with no explanation whatsoever. We will be back in two weeks' time with our Phone Bluff or Phone Bluff quiz. Until then, you've been listening to... A man who will be watching out for vampires this Halloween. A man who has already begun drafting Hazel's next statement for the next episode. (laughs) Oh, fuck you. (laughs) A man with 27 counts of contempt and counting. A man who will turn on the rock zone for Hazel and then turn that off and turn on the on the rock zone for Andy. And a woman who will fix your crown for you anytime. See you next time. Bye bye. Halloween. Can you leave then just like 10 or 15 minutes of silence, Peter, then? I'm still here. (laughs) (laughs) I'm still here.
always here.